0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, I'm Kelly Brownell, the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. And I'm delighted to welcome Ronnie Neff, Dr. Ronnie Neff as our visitor today. She's from the Center for a Livable Future at Johns Hopkins University School of Public Health. She has an undergraduate degree from Brown University, a master's degree from the Harvard School of Public Health, and a PhD from Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. Um, Ronnie, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you for bringing me here.
0: Um, In my mind, the Center for a Livable Future is quite a unique place. I think one of the only kind of places like this in the nation. Tell us a little bit about what the center deals with, and then I'd like to get into some food and climate issues that I know are uh, of great concern to you.
1: Great. Well, the center, we're an academic center located within the Bloomberg School of Public Health um, in Baltimore, and we focus on connections between diet, food production, environment, and public health. And so we have three main programs within that, one called Farming for the Future that focuses a lot on agriculture, in particular, a lot of focus on animal agriculture one called Eating for the Future, and that we focused a lot on food security issues as well as the um, Monday programs, such as Eat Healthy Monday, and then um, Living for the Future, which is focused some on water and some on climate change, but our climate change work also runs throughout the center in terms of all of our activities. And even though I say those three programs, they're all kind of um, tied together.
0: Okay, so the center spends a lot of time thinking about and trying to attack issues about how food is produced, And what impact that has on human health on one hand and on the environment on the other.
1: Absolutely, yes. And
0: those those are important issues. I mean, and and there are lots of ways one can address this. But let's just take the antibiotics as an example. Um, Tell us a little bit about, I mean, in, in the terms of sustainability and the impact on the environment of antibiotics used in the raising of farm animals. What's some of the background on that?
1: Okay. Well, a lot of people have heard about the public health crisis of antibiotic resistance, that you go in and you try and get a condition treated, and um, it turns out that the antibiotic that they give you doesn't work. But there's been a lot less discussion about the use of antibiotics in in um, animal production, in food animal production, where they're using, um, by one estimate, about 70% of the antibiotics in this country are used in food animals. And um, when you use that, and they're used because the animals are grown in industrial conditions and they're so stressed that they basically need that um, antibiotics to be able to grow and not get sick. And, um, And so when you're using such high levels of antibiotics, resistance develops. And as a result, that resistance has also been transmitted to humans. There was a report that came out this week in the Annual Reviews of Public Health where they basically... Um, said that we have looked at so many of the different connections that would be needed to prove that there's a causal pathway between the antibiotics used in animals and the connection to food. Um, We can't figure out what else there is that needs to be studied. Now the time has come to look at policy.
0: I remember hearing about some of the origins of the antibiotics in the farming industry and I from what I understand a, a huge amount of antibiotics are used in chickens. And if I understand the the history right, it was pretty interesting. They're, they, uh, growing a lot of chickens in a small, confined space makes the flock of chickens, or whatever they're called, um, vulnerable to mass infections, and your whole group of chickens can be wiped out in a hurry. And so farmers started using antibiotics prophylactically to try to prevent these outbreaks of infections from occurring in the first place. And then, if I understand right, please correct me if I'm wrong, they found that the chickens grew better with the antibiotics for reasons that still may not be that well understood. And so that was even more impetus to throw these antibiotics at the at the caged animals.
1: Yes and no. In terms of how they're growing, um, there was actually, they may grow a little bit better, but, but if you actually look at it from a... Uh, the perspective of the cost to the producers to grow these things, um, because of the extra cost of the um, of the antibiotics themselves, it turns out that they they earn like a penny more by using the antibiotics than by not using them. So it's not even necessarily beneficial to them. And as a result, some of the major producer, or maybe as a result, but some of the major producers have said that they're stopping using antibiotics. We don't necessarily have a way to track that, but. Um, but that is the implication. And um, a number of the major um, health organizations have also called for a ban of using prophylactic antibiotics in animal agriculture.
0: Okay, well, thanks for clarifying that. And we just used antibiotics as an example. I mean, we could have used depletion of water resources and mm-hmm. is an example of modern farming methods and what impact it has on the environment. Or of course, use of fossil fuels, use of pesticides, you know, there are a lot of different things one could talk about. All right, let's turn to the, the a topic that I know is of great interest to you and pretty new on the scene. Not as new as it should be, but but new. And that's the whole issue of climate change and food. Tell us about some mm-hmm. of the background thinking that you've done on that. You talked about climate change and, and, and how food production can affect the environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, give us some, some of your thoughts about the, the I mean, how severe of a problem that is. and When people are eating certain foods, should they be con- concerned about the impact on the environment? What impact does this have as a nation and things like that?
1: Yeah, we are not hearing about the impact of um, food and agriculture on climate change. According to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which put out their um, fourth major report in 2007, Um, About 31% of um, greenhouse gas emissions worldwide are coming out of agriculture and forestry combined. And I mentioned forestry there because a lot of that is deforestation, um, and they're using the land that they've deforested in order to grow cattle and to raise the feed for the cattle. And the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization has estimated that worldwide, about 18% of greenhouse gas emissions are coming out of livestock production alone. So there's just an enormous impact of our food system on climate that we are not hearing about.
0: It's a startling statistic that you present that 31% of all greenhouse gases come from food in one way or another. Mm -hmm. That's a huge amount, and most people wouldn't be thinking about the food they eat in that kind of a context. In um, a presentation that you made, I saw you break it down into smaller numbers, and we don't need to get into specific numbers, but uh, people, for example, might think that the trans transporting the food from one place to another would be a big contributor to that 31%. Is it or is it not? And what else might be the major pieces of that 31%? Yeah,
1: that's a great question. And um, we do hear a lot about transportation or what they call food miles, which is the distance that um, food is transported from farm to fork. And Um, A lot of the, and and intuitively that makes a lot of sense, that if you're transporting something halfway around the world versus growing it locally, it should be much better from a greenhouse gas emissions perspective to grow it locally. Um, But the evidence is much more mixed than that, and a lot of the studies point to the fact that it, first of all, it depends on the mode of transportation, and some of the long-distance transportation modes have a lot fewer emissions than especially some of the local ones, and um, so in many cases, um, transportation is just a much smaller percentage of greenhouse gas emissions than you might think, on the order of, say, 2 to 4% max. Um, and some of the, the types of impacts that have a much bigger um, impact, that probably the number one way that a person could reduce their food-related greenhouse gas emissions would be to eat less beef or dairy. Some of the other big ones are um,
0: before we before yes. we get into some of the other big ones, could you explain more about why beef and dairy are so important?
1: Yeah, there's well, first it's important to say that there's three main greenhouse gases that are particularly important for the food system. Whereas normally we just think about carbon dioxide in the food system, um, methane and nitrous oxide are important, and uh, and these are much more potent greenhouse gases than carbon dioxide. And one of the the top source of methane is um, essentially belching by cows. And because cows um, have multiple stomachs, and so when they digest food, um, the methane emissions are produced. So that's that's where the that's the methane. The methane also comes from um, manure that's stored in cesspits, and then um, nitrous oxide, a key source of that, is nitrogen fertilizers. And a lot of our nitrogen fertilizers are used for um, producing feed for animals. The other main reason that animal agriculture has such a big impact on um, greenhouse gas emissions is that Many of the animals worldwide are grown in deforested lands, and deforestation has a tremendous impact um, because a lot. This normally the soil and the plant life can trap a lot of greenhouse gases. And when you rip that up, and for example, the UN stated that 70% of deforested lands in the Amazon are used for um, pasture for cattle, and a lot of the rest is used for um, growing feed for cattle, you get a big
0: impact. Sure do. Um, I mean, that's really, those are really remarkable statistics, and people, I mean, as funny as it sounds about cows belching, um, you, you wouldn't think that such a big impact on the environment is occurring, and what's coming out mm-hmm. of these cows is more damaging than carbon dioxide. It's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, pound for pound. Or, pound yeah, for pound, right. Exactly. Right.
0: So, Ronnie, you've talked about the profound effect of modern food production and, and modern eating habits on the environment. So let's talk first about what individuals might do about that. So when people start thinking about the food choices they're making, and which kind of things might go through their minds, and what kind of choices could they make that might make a difference?
1: Okay. Well, I would say that, first of all, we need more science, and we need more evidence to really help us clarify these choices. But even with the current state of science, there's some things that we can say pretty clearly. And the number one thing is probably eating less meat and dairy. Other things that seem um, very clear include um, reducing use of foods from um, greenhouses and reducing use of foods that have been air freighted in as opposed to other modes of transportation. How would
0: people know that? How Um, would people know what's been air freighted in? Are there certain sorts of foods that fall into that category that are likely to have been shipped that way?
1: Um, yeah, some kinds of foods are, and sometimes th- there are you can tell in the labels, but okay. not always. Okay. You're right; it's th- there's a real gap in labeling, and that's one of the things that we really need more of, which I'll mention when we get to the government side. Okay. Okay. Um, but the other key message I think is in eating seasonally, and so it's, it it takes the eat local message, but really frames it in a way that it's not just eating local; it's eating what is seasonal. And if you eat seasonally, you're not as likely to get those other types of products and that also means you're eating fresher and you're eating tastier Um, food that is less processed has a long shelf life so that it doesn't as not as likely to get wasted and um, food that's produced through um, relatively sustainable methods such as organic or no-till agriculture um, is also helpful but then
0: i'm sorry explain the the no-till concept because that may not be familiar to some people
1: yeah, it's, and again, it, this is a question of labeling because it's very unlikely that, for the most part, you're going to have food that's labeled that way, but this is something we need to push for. Basically, as I was mentioning before, um, the soil can trap a lot of greenhouse gases, and when you till the soil or basically rake through it, um, that it, it helps produce the food more easily, but it also releases those gases, greenhouse gases that have been trapped in the soil. And some of the analyses have do- that have been done show that this is really can have a significant impact.
0: Okay. So you're really speaking to the need, therefore, <laughs> of consumers knowing more about where their food comes from. And you bet. how it's shipped or how it's made in the first place. Does does that lead into some of the government things that might be done, as you indicated?
1: It does. Could I just go back to a couple more individual-level yeah, things we'll, that are we'll important? Sure. Um, Because one of the things that comes out is that there's a lot less talking about what happens inside the home um, as opposed to what happens in the production system. And so things like, for example, cooking food in bulk as opposed to little bits at a time, or having fewer trips to the store, um, using less um, refrigeration, less packaging, all those things really matter. Um, And finally, I think in terms of our society, we are a society where we're, overproducing food. And we're also not, we're wasting a lot of the food that we produce. And any food that either is um, wasted or food that is produced that we're eating that we don't need to eat, you could see that in one sense as greenhouse gas emissions that didn't need to happen.
0: So people probably don't think of, I mean, people are, are aware of when they waste food certainly, and there's you know the old thing about people are starving in certain parts of the world, mm-hmm. and so I think there's probably general awareness of that kind of waste, although it's probably not as high as it should be. But I think most people wouldn't think about the the fact that a lot of energy was taken to produce that food in the first place, so there's an environmental impact as well.
1: Exactly. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, should we talk about the government things now? Yes. What I'd are love to. what are some of the things government might do?
1: Well, there's a lot of things that the government can do, and. To my knowledge, in the United States, as compared to, for example, Europe and the UK, where there's a lot more advancement, there's very little government policy in the U.S. that focuses on um, reducing greenhouse gas emissions coming out of food and agriculture. And even the policies that are relevant aren't framed in, in terms of climate change. But some of the key things that we can be doing would be to promote more sustainable food production and to make these foods more, more accessible and more affordable so they're not luxury goods, um, reducing our overproduction of food, um, improving the food labeling, as we were just alluding to, and, and funding for the research that would be necessary to get the food labels that we want to get. We need to be um, doing more regulating of the methods, like once we identify methods of production or of processing or of food distribution that help um, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, there is an opportunity for regulation to help promote those, message- those methods. Um, we need funding for communication campaigns and for better for communication, and as well as for figuring out how to communicate these messages in the best way. And finally, we need to integrate food and agricultural policy um, with our climate change policy in a much more effective way than we're currently doing.
0: Well, speaking about policy, I know that you're very knowledgeable about the Farm Bill. And most people don't, I mean, they wouldn't think the Farm Bill is something important or relevant to them unless they are a farmer. But of course, it affects our food supply in very profound ways. And Mm -hmm. being the massive piece of legislation it is, tell us a little bit about how the Farm Bill is a player in this Picture your painting of you know, food, climate change, the environment, etc.
1: Great question. Well, the Farm Bill, for the most part, has not been couched in climate change terms, um, but it does have profound impact on climate and on um, the availability of food in this country and on the public's health as a result. Um, so one and there's a couple of different points at which the intersection occurs. One of them is um, in terms of as we were talking about. Um, reducing the overuse of land. And there was an article in in this morning in the New York Times talking about how um, lands where the the farm bill gives funding to farmers to um, basically not produce on certain lands to conserve those lands. And farmers with the rising food prices have now been using those lands and, stop, and stopping the conservation, and that matters in climate change context. hasn't been communicated as such, but it matters. So mm-hmm. That's just one piece. Another piece is that our farm bill basically contains so many incentives for farmers to produce fence row to fence row and just really overproduce food.
0: By that, do you mean produce all of one crop in a specific area, or you mean just use all the available land or both?
1: Well, the incentives are for both. But what, what I was specifically talking about was the, over, the, the using as much land as possible and using as many chemicals and, and energy-intensive processes as we can to get as much yield as we possibly can out of the available land. Mm-hmm. And in addition to a lot of harmful environmental effects, it also leads to um, an overproduction of food, and it also leads to a lot of unnecessary greenhouse gas emissions
0: people have spoken about how the overproduction of food drives down its cost and availability of some things, like all the th- stuff that comes from corn, as an example, like high fructose corn syrup, and the corn then feeds the cows and makes hamburger cheaper and all those sort of things. And a lot of this is really affected by the Farm Bill, isn't it?
1: It is. Now, okay, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to think about how to say this. It, it's very affected by the Farm Bill, but at the same... Let's
0: see. Well, do you want? Could I ask it a different way? Yeah. it would be helpful. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, when let me say this. I mean, most people don't know what the farm bill is all about, but it actually has a lot of different pieces, mm-hmm. and the pieces affect things all the way from how much corn might be grown in the country to um, to, to conservation and uh, o- other factors that are very influential on our overall food environment. Um, what are some of the specific things you'd like to see in the Farm Bill that would help improve the public's health?
1: There's a lot of things. Um, one of the one of the key issues, and there's been a lot of focus on the issue of subsidies to farmers, and these have been painted as sort of the number one evil of the Farm Bill by some. And there are others that question that and say that really the problem is our overall policy and the way that it pushes um, overproduction, but that the subsidies basically came after the overproduction. They didn't make the overproduction. And that um, the the subsidies are not the thing that's driving down the cost of food and making unhealthy food um, so available that what's driving those trends is, is trends in agribusiness and um, the benefits of overproduction beyond subsidies. And that basically when food it, when the food industry has certain products that they are avail- that they are able to um, to produce cheaply, they're going to find as many opportunities as they can to get those into foods. And that may be one of the reasons why we have so much, for example, high fructose corn syrup. Um, and I would also say in terms of our um, corn and soy that uh, about sixty percent of corn and forty percent of soy that's produced in this country, speaking of overproduction, it goes into animal feeds. So um, the, the benefits there go to the agribusinesses, but they don't necessarily go to, um, the, the economic benefits are not necessarily passed through to consumers.
0: You know, one theme running through a lot of what you're saying, I think, is uh, I was reminded of when in a, by a talk I heard from a, um, a scholar named Fred Kirschman uh, in Iowa, who said, I guess he was asked something like, what would it take to turn this picture around? And he said it takes a story. And he said that he thinks if people become interested in the story of their food, that is, they want to know where it came from and they want to know who grew it and they want to know how far it got shipped and things like that, then that opens the door to lots of these kind of changes. And um, I'm not sure if you would agree with that statement, but it seems consistent with the sort of things you're saying, that if consumers want to know where their food comes from, or how far it's shipped, for example, then they're going to demand changes in labeling. And then that information will be available. Then they can make choices based on that. They'll be concerned about every bite of food they take, Not not in a negative way, Mm -hmm. but they'll be concerned about the impact of their food choices on the environment, as well as on their own health and well-being. And so that story becomes a pretty interesting concept, isn't it? And not many people know the story behind their food.
1: I agree with that. Not many people do know the story behind their food. And I think that that's of great interest to a lot of people. I think when thinking about um, ways to affect eating behavior, there's a lot of different types of motivations for a lot of different people. And so for some people, hearing the story behind it is going to be very powerful. For other people, just knowing that there's an environmental impact of what they're eating may be the thing that pushes them over the edge. For other people, it may be their nutrition. For other, it's what can I get as fast as possible? And we may be looking at how do we produce in environmentally sustainable ways foods that people can get dinner ready for their kids as quickly as possible. And for many others, it comes down to price. And so there's a need for, um, for policy and for communication efforts and for, for addressing these problems from a lot of different angles.
0: You know, as you as you talk about sustainable practices and eating more seasonally, Etc. cetera, um, it, you know, reminds one of the old days where food was grown locally and there weren't so many s- processing steps and a, uh, you weren't so physically distant from it, not to mention psychologically distant. And mm-hmm. I'm reminded, uh, as, uh, many times when I give talks these days, I start off by showing a slide that's a food ingredient label from a, a food, mm-hmm. and I ask people to try to guess what it is. And, in fact, it could be a lot of different types of food. It happens to be a chocolate Mm Pop-Tart. But the most amazing thing about that ingredient list is it has 56 entries into this sort of thing. And there was a time when food would have had one ingredient on the label. It would have been whatever the food was. And Mm -hmm. now we have 56 different things. And, and, you know, you could even legitimately ask the question about whether something like a chocolate Pop-Tart is really a food (laughs) or whether it's a chemical. I mean, it should, should it be regulated by the FDA or by the EPA, for example? And th- these seem far-fetched, but it, it really does show you how how different the food supply is now and how we're so distant from where the food came from. And the work you're talking about would bring people closer to it. They would understand where it comes from. They would appreciate the importance of how the food was raised. And they would be concerned about how this fits into an overall sort of global citizenship, wouldn't they?
1: Absolutely. And that's a really powerful message to show that slide. Um, that's yeah, a great idea. And, and
0: those things yeah. are so, so so important. Well, I thank you again for coming and joining us, Ronnie. It was wonderful hearing from you. And like I said when I introduced you, the Center for Livable Future is quite a unique place. And I wish to goodness there were more of them out there now, but I know there are going to be more of them in the future. And that's largely due to the work you and your colleagues are doing. So thank goodness this is occurring, and I'm expecting the world's going to be better off. So thank you again for joining us.
1: And thank you so much for having me here. I'm, as I had said before, I'm so excited about the work of the Red Center as well. and I'm- Looking forward to working together in the future. Well, Thank Thank you, you very much. Thank you
0: very much. So again, our guest today was Dr. Ronnie Neff on the faculty of the Johns Hopkins University School of Public Health and Research Director for a Center for a Livable Future from Johns Hopkins. Um, as I say, with each of these webcasts, we have a number of these recorded. A number of other excellent guests have recorded these. And if you go to either the Yale University website or to the Rudd Center website, which is www.yalerudcenter.org, you'll find a list of these and a number of other resources. Thank you very much.